Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas, thoughts, or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families without it being lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science Episode 84. We are proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Hot, joined, as always, by Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? Michael, two weeks in a row, buddy. Welcome back. Yeah, it feels good. It's good to see you, man. And joining us for the first time in seven weeks, Michelle Wintering. Seven weeks, yikes! That sounds sad. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, how's it going? Uh, I'm good. It, we talked about it last week. Between illness and everyone going away, it's been a long time since the three of us have been together. It's so nice to see your faces again and hear your voices, because I know Aww. our listeners can't see your beautiful faces. Yeah, that would be weird if you could see us through the podcast. We could put our faces on the show art. Do it. I would like that. <laughs> would Do you it. really? Why not? I'm too fat. I don't want my face on any show art. No, I want point. like an animated version of it. Oh, no. Well, no, we did that before. I do not want to go back that way. <laughs> I need to see this. Isn't that sad? Let's yeah, do that. it is. Let's do that face app thing where we look old. Oh, no. I don't want to do any of that face app thing where we looked old. I don't want to get punked by Russia. I know. We're did giving our data that? away to everyone. I don't want everyone. to do that. It's just our fat faces. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Anyways. We... <laughs> We're off to a great start with all three of us. We want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. That'll take you directly to our friends over at the XPN Network. Uh, you can also find us over on patreon.com, patreon.com slash speechsciencepodcast. Up there, we are still doing the giveaway that if you are one of the higher donors, we will meet you, or at least I will meet you. I don't know if you guys are going to Disney yet. Uh, at Asha, will will I'll take you out to dinner. How's that sound? A free a free date with Matt Hot. Yeah, with my kids. Not bad. My kids are going to Asha. Also, you can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com and hit us up on our phone number 614-681-1798. Did you guys see that uh argument on Facebook the other day about kids at Asha? I did. I, I saw did it. I saw it. it. I saw it. So Asha put out a thing that said, hey, uh, there's no daycare at Asha. Also, please don't bring your children to Asha into this professional uh, CEU environment. I'm guessing that happened. 
people lost their minds. They were like, how can we not bring our held infant newborns into therapy educational programs? And like, I might have been the only one that was like, why would you bring your kids to Asha? I mean, I'm th I think they're meaning like a, a nursing or a, a carried baby. Is that different? Or was well, that they're the saying discussion? like you can't. They said you can't bring that, and you can't bring your ten-year-old ragamuffin <laughs> playing on his Nintendo Switch while I'm trying to figure out the difference between Paps Veer Valve and something else. I guess my question was: Did that happen at the last Asha? Were there a lot of kids, and it was a problem? Know. No, because I don't I remember Denver, seeing kids at the last Asha. At Denver, I saw kids. I think if maybe I, one. I remember seeing okay. one person carrying a baby. If I was a kid and my mom or dad <laughs> brought me to Asha, I would be pissed. I would not want to listen to that stuff. Right. Like, hey, mom, I'm going to go with you to the conference. Hey, dad, I can't wait to listen. What are we learning about? Uh, the efficacy of Boardmaker? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. 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 <laughs> so this was a whole debate on a Facebook group. Yeah, basically saying that Asha should let people bring their kids and or at least have a daycare center set up for their kids to be at. I guess that would take like a lot Asha of. Camp. Wow. Those, I guess they did it in the past, but those SLP Facebook groups are good for at least one crazy argument per month. <laughs> one. <laughs> He said at least one. He did at say least at least one. one. It's something I, just out of the ordinary. I have never typed so much stuff that I've deleted. You always I've comment. Just, you always comment. I do. I and then I'm like, why you. did I do that? I always see you. I, and I, I get the, down, And I see yeah. Matthew, Matthew Hot. Don't bring your don't bring your kids, you fools. And the, well, <laughs> the Facebook <laughs> algorithm pulls up what your friends post first. Right. So yeah. I always see Matt's comments. Well, there's a cartoon that was uh, a couple years ago, like a little meme on the internet, and it said, I can't go to bed now. Somebody is wrong on the internet. And that is me to yep. a T. Yep. I'm like, and my problem is, is in all these Facebook groups, and I apologize to everybody in these Facebook groups. I almost groups. snorted when you said I know. that. I'm sorry. Like, I apologize ahead of time to everyone in the Facebook groups because internally I'm like, oh, I've got the most rational response to the world to this. Typey, 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 send. And then everyone's like, you're an idiot. Stop talking. And I'm like, well, this is why. And I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? I've missed you guys. This is Aww. great. Just so you all know, his name is Matthew Hot with two T's. <laughs> his picture is him holding his two kids. Yeah, it is. I, I am in him, way too many Facebook groups. Send so. him a message. I'm sure he's pissed you off or your friends. <laughs> Probably have. Thinking of things that might not upset you on today's episode, we are going to talk about what Sesame Street is doing uh, with the Ad Council on a new round of PSAs. Also, ABA therapy. Is it abuse? Or is it useful for nonverbal students? We'll talk a little bit about that. And also the bi-directional interference between simulated driving and speaking. That's where Michael will tell us, can you do two things at once or does it affect you? But I thought we'd start off with this, an article out of healthday.com. Uh, uh, it talks a little bit about how extreme eating habits could be an early cue to autism and I know there's a lot of things that we look for in autism. How important is it to find or at least look for these clues and maybe try to help get an early diagnosis uh, for our students or for our children? I know that feeding is a question that comes into any that that I'm aware of. And I was on an ADOS team in Colorado, too, 
the topic of feeding and food aversions and picky eating in quotes there um, comes up at every eval that we were in. And in part, just to ask those questions, because I, I don't know what the research is showing, but this article is saying that, what were the numbers? It said seven uh, times more likely. I think it said 15 times. Did it say 15? 15 oh, times the rate. behaviors. Okay, I'm sorry. Typically found in children. Yeah. So atypical eating behaviors such as hypersensitivity to food textures or pocketing food without swallowing in, is found in 70% of kids with an autism diagnosis. Um, and I mean, 15 times the rate that I like that there's some research behind this now because before I felt like it's and I, I want to read this article, like find the background article on it. But um, before I felt like it was very anecdotal of, I talked to therapists who say, well, mm -hmm. every kid that I worked with, with autism, you know, had this issue, which is hard to make that generalization. Right. But, um, but I've also worked with parents who said, oh, when I ask them, oh, how, tell me about their eating. And they say, oh, they eat what every kid with autism eats, you know, that kind of phrase. So I think that is helpful. This, yeah, exactly. Like, give me more. <laughs> but, um, uh, but I think there is this anecdotal experiential sort of like idea that atypical food habits come with autism. So I'd like to see more data like this to say, what do we know about it? No, I, I, I didn't realize there was a link at all until I started working in a preschool. Uh, this was a couple of years ago and sitting at the preschool feeding table at like snack time. And watching the OTs work on sensory integration for the slimy grapes or the crunchy carrots or the lukewarm whatever it was at, at the snack time. I never even realized that a lot of kids that are picky eaters at that age are also on the autism spectrum. I just kind of assumed it was a quirk at the high school age that I had previously worked with. Hmm. I yeah. guess I sound unintelligible or unintelligent when it comes to that. But I just didn't even realize it until I did my tour of duty in the preschool. Well, if you think about it, that rejection, the rejection of foods uh, is one of the earliest forms of communication. They're, they're having that oh, rejection. Yeah. They're having that, that, uh, that negative experience with the food. And they're also showing pretty much a, an, an extreme rigidity. Uh, they find one thing that works and they stick with it which is something that you tend to see, uh, obviously not in all individuals with autism, but with autism, you tend to see that rigidity and that incredibly narrow comfort zone that they kind of stick with. So, so obviously feeding is something that is done from birth. So this is one of the earliest signs of that rigidity, as well as that very minimal communication skill. I never even thought about it like that as the uh, re rejection as, as an early communication. Yep. And I, I do think it goes, you mentioned the early communication that reminds me of the interview uh, I did with Mel Potok, the feeding specialist out of Denver. And she talks about feeding as a conversation, especially a young kid with their parent and the child um, of making it non-stressful and making it enjoyable for both parties. Uh, even if they do have aversions to certain foods. And then also the other kind of telltale sign that I thought of is the sensory piece of, you know, when we talk of atypical feeding behaviors, we're often talking about they don't like certain textures or colors, or um, it's more about, it's not always taste. It's often they won't even taste it. Like we're not even to that point yet. 
Um, so we're talking about a sensory input and it can be visual, it can be touch, it can be smell. And, um, you know, if you have a kiddo with autism who is hypersensitive to one of those things, then food is going to be, whoa, an overload. Makes sense. And, and that interview will actually be on air next week for us. Which one? The the interview you had with the nutritionist. Oh, no. Mel- Melanie Potak, the SLP, a while ah, ago. Ah, okay. I'm sorry. Yep, yep, the yep. nutrition but, one. Uh, the dietitian, week. yes. Dietitian one. Is Martha, next week. I interviewed a pediatric dietitian that we will be airing soon. Nice. I couldn't have messed up the cell for that one more times than if I tried. It's all good. I can advertise. <laughs> this is good. We can, we can advertise for upcoming interviews. Oh, we want to hear from you, though. What do you notice about feeding and autism in your setting or with your own children? Head over to our website, speech sciencepodcast.com you can email us speech science podcast at gmail.com or text us 614-681-1798 or if you would like to interact with michelle or michael it's hashtag ss pod on instagram and twitter right we have uh, a twitter yeah. now we have had a twitter no but i were using the twitter we had an instagram and we didn't use it remember i will give you the username and password i'm in charge of the twitter it is speech science pc speech science podcast pc or speech science pc that's it yeah there you go (laughs) our next article is actually coming out of the journal of speech language and hearing research uh the title is bi-directional interference between simulated driving and speaking by christopher dromey and kelsey simmons uh, basically, they looked at three groups, uh, ages 20 to 30, 40 to 50, and 60 to 71 years old. Uh, the adults had to produce a monologue and complete a simulated driving task, which involved maintaining a constant speed and lane position on a freeway. And guess what? Uh, in all age groups, their ability to do them correctly decreased. Look so, at that. So I turn to the executive functioning expert, Michael McLeod, who has a wonderful practice in Philadelphia. Why does that happen? Well, I, 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 when I was reading this, I pretty much thought this was pretty obvious. I, I thought it was obvious that these two issues would, would happen. Uh, pretty much when you're talking about executive functioning and performance, uh, especially with these two things. So what was it, driving and speaking? Mm-hmm. doing a monologue okay. and driving. Yeah, doing a monologue and driving. So pretty much the best way to think about this is to think about <clears throat> your executive functioning, your ability to be productive, your ability to perform. One of the best ways to think about it is like a like a RAM uh, of a computer. So how much information can it take in? How much performance can it do before it crashes? So right here you're doing you're doing driving and you're doing a monologue and that's it's it's pretty much overload so you're going to have some sort of instance where the performance is going to decrease uh, because you are exerting two separate areas of performance at once and you're overtaxing that frontal lobe of the brain so my dumb question as i'm driving down the highway looking at facebook on my phone is the same thing happening then as i'm driving absolutely if you're looking at Facebook on your phone, you're not driving Which as I don't, by the way, just just facetiously saying. Then why was that the example? Uh, you know, I see it <laughs> as I drive. No, but like in reality, I do drive all day and I see people like on their phones and I've even oh, given course. verbal notes in my phone while driving between patients. Of mm-hmm. course. 
if you're super focused and you're driving and you have your hands at 10 and two and you're focused and you're really thinking you're driving fairly well, you're not using too much gas. You're not slamming on the brakes. You're paying attention to the lane you're in. You're paying attention to the drivers around you. Fine. If you're driving bored and your mind is racing and you're thinking about all sorts of things besides the road around you, you're not going to perform as well as a driver. But if you're on your phone and your brain is taking in information from your phone or whatever it may be, your driving performance, while it may be still so fine, you may be driving perfectly fine, it won't be as good as if you were focusing your sole attention on driving. I bet that there are even more studies that could come or maybe will come from this because I'm my brain's kind of running thinking, you know, we talk about dual tasking or divided attention. If you're driving, I've heard it compared to hypnosis, right? Where you're driving a route, you always drive from home to work to work to home, whatever that route is that you kind of zone out, right? So I wonder if you were driving a route that you zone out on normally, if you would be able to do that verbal task better i'm not saying you're driving better just saying you're on <laughs> autopilot and um and then secondly if you um because if you're on an unfamiliar route or all of us have probably done it where you're driving and the weather gets really bad it's raining or you're you're not sure where you are we turn the radio down or we turn it off or we stop other input so that we can figure out what's going on or focus on the road more and um i mean we do it without even thinking like we we drop the stimuli so that we can focus on one task instead of dual tasking. Which kind of brings me to what I do with some of my home care patients and even some of my high school students uh, that I would work with on some cognition stuff or executive functioning is that if they start to do real well, I'll start to play music like during therapy settings just to, I guess in my brain, I'm trying to make it a little bit more difficult for them to concentrate. Um, and, and I realized that during my own therapy, that if it's music that they enjoy, they actually do worse because they're actually paying attention to it. Where if it's music that they don't enjoy, they almost block it out and do the task as accurately as they were doing it before. Yeah, that makes perfectly that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, when you're listening to music you enjoy and you're focusing on it, that's activating those specific parts of the brain. Uh, that, that reminds me of when they provide, uh, Alzheimer's and dementia patients with music from, uh, mm -hmm. from their time to kind of get them energized and to bring back some memories and things like that. And that's really, that's really what you're doing there is you're playing music to, to, to get them focused on that and to bring them back to that. But your task is to kind of make it, it's almost like playing white noise in the background to see if you can still perform. That's kind of like what you're describing. Uh, and that's really what it is, is when you have that extra auditory feedback or that extra input coming into the brain, uh, performing other tasks will be difficult. I have a therapy question then for the both of you guys, and maybe it's just a rhetorical thought question. But are we wasting our time then when we look at working on a cognition or an executive functioning skill in isolation? I mean, if we're looking at like I work with adults that uh, post-stroke in, in the home care setting. And if we know that realistically, they're never going to work on a task in isolation, should I be spending more time at an earlier stage with a distraction for a split attention task? So if I'm doing an organizational task, should I already have music or TV or a YouTube clip playing 
early on in therapy instead of waiting for them to conquer the task individually and then move to distraction. That is certainly a goal. You certainly want therapy to get to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, in the beginning, you have to focus on several other things before you get to that point. That's almost like uh, like working with like an early intervention style student, mm -hmm. and you're working on on the last pieces of the goal before it's finally mastered. I got you. So with executive functioning, uh, the way you're talking about it, if they're able to perform the executive function task with uh, therapist created distractions, that's really right on the verge of mastering that skill. Uh, full mastery of executive function skill has to happen in the true environment where it's happening. So you're going to need a parent report, a teacher report, or you're going to have to observe, or there's going to have to be something. There's no standardized test. There's nothing to show it. You pretty much need to master that skill in the environment. And that's really a prelude that's what you're describing is the prelude to that. It's, okay. the, it's the therapist created environment. And then after that, they master that they're, they're mastering it in the true environment over time uh, in high frequency as reported by the people who are around them to show that that skill has been achieved. Michelle, you looked like you were going to say something before, but I, I didn't want to cut you off. Before oh, no, that. I just, I, I liked listening to what Mike says and I like the idea of, of building on it because we do that we stair step things all the time so it makes sense to me to do the task in an isolated format where they can master it just like we do articulation and isolation first um before we build to phrases and words or words and phrases and and we do syllables and then words and then phrases so it makes sense to build and layer our therapy Exactly. It's like a it's like a social pragmatic goal for a very young kid. Uh, basically, they have to uh, master the the conversation initiation with you, the circles of communication back and forth, the topic maintenance with the clinician first, and then you're going to want to observe them in the classroom using those exact same skills they used with you with their with their same aged peers. It's pretty much if I could compare it to any true speech and language goal, I would compare it to that. Makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. We want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. Let us know where we got it right, what we got wrong. You can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or phone call or text message 614-681-1798. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk a little bit of Sesame Street and their new deal with the Ad Council and also ABA therapy. Is it abuse? We'll come right back. You're listening to Speech Science. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome back to Speech Science, episode 85. Matt Hot joined, as always, by Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. Hi, and Michael McLeod. What's up? What up? All right, our next article is coming out of uh, Taylor Francis Online. It's cog cog cogent, cogent, 
How do I say that? Cognant. C-O-G-E-N-T. Cogent. Thank you. Cogent <laughs> Psychology. Uh, it's by Eileen uh, Herlinda Sandoval Norton and Gary Shikidi. Uh, along with Jacqueline Ann Rushby, the reviewing editor. Uh, it says, how much compliance is too much compliance is long-term ABA therapy uh, abuse. And they go into a lot of details about ABA therapy. Uh, it says autism's relevance and prevalence is slowly creeping to the forefront of modern day medication. Uh, our medicine, ABA, is a form of behavior modification that relies heavily on external reinforcements, both positive and negative, a.k.a. operant uh, conditioning. Um, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this article, because this is the big, big one this week, what are your guys' initial reactions to ABA therapy? Uh, I've, from my experiences, and I'm, I'm someone who's trained and uh, consistently uses the DI, DIR floor time approach. Uh, one of the main things that this, um, this article really highlights is uh, honestly some of the negative things about ABA and how um, a lot of the research is showing that it is teaching children um, some sort of negative compliance, learned helplessness, a food reward obsession, and it tends to magnify vulnerabilities, uh, low self-esteem, decreased internal motivation, which is huge for communication, uh, and decreased uh, interpersonal skills and increased anxiety as well. Um, so, and of course that prompt dependency. Um, so th th these are all things that I've, uh, certainly observed and I've certainly, uh, believed about ABA. And, uh, I think this article really highlights those things. I think on, on my end, I've, um, I'm thinking more of the, the families I've worked with, with young children, and I've had families say, you know, ABA has made a world of difference. Our kid can finally do things they were never able to do. But then I've also had parents sit in an evaluation and say what Mike said, that they, um, you know, their food, their child is averse to certain types of food because it was paired with that ABA prompting so much um, when they try to do ABA for a year or so. Um, so I feel like I need to learn more about both. I want to learn more about the DIR floor time model and more about ABA because I've had parents ask what my recommendation is and I have a hard time giving them a, a strong recommendation just because I don't personally know enough about both. When I hear the arguments for ABA, uh, I instantly go back to uh, what I learned in leveling courses um, about Chomsky versus Skinner. Are you guys remember those mm, lessons psychology, and, and stuff yep. where like Skinner was saying that it's an innate language? Uh, no, I'm sorry. Chomsky was saying that it's an innate language that we are naturally drawn to creating language um, with input from the outside or with external input. And Skinner says that it's all behavioral modification uh, in a way that when we say mama, it's because the lady turns and, and gives us food. So we go, oh, my gosh, that must mean mama. And I hear about that from ABA. And I've worked with a couple ABA therapists. I, I don't see if ABA is done ethically and correctly, I think, at least the way I see it is correctly. I don't see it as abuse. I think, however, 
there's a lot of people that rely in the ABA realm, rely too much on that operant conditioning. And Mm -hmm. um, like Michael said, they become reliant on food. Um, It's, this is tough because I've worked with some good ABA therapists. I've gone to some ABA trainings at OSLA uh, out here in Ohio, but um, I don't know, man, like, I, I hear the horror stories and now we've got articles being written by students or people with autism or aut- autistics that have said ABA is abuse. I feel like I've been abused. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what stood out in the article is where they said, shockingly, the lack of research to describe um, the longitudinal side of it. Like what we're getting the short term effect of that, you know, cause and effect and the response of the child to this prompt. Um, my question with any ABA therapist that I've worked with who've come into a session with one of the kids I'm working with is how are we moving beyond the prompting? Like at what point do we drop the prompting and the pairing it with the reward? Because that as an SLP is our goal. Just mm-hmm. like we talked about an article ago of how do we get the carryover? Where is true mastery? Because the therapy room or with the ABA therapist is not mastery. Yep. Yeah. And, and this article really, I, I liked how it states, basically, we do not yet understand the longitudinal effects of the entire generation that has mm-hmm. undergone this treatment. And there's so many reasons. And we, if we want to dig deeper, there's so many reasons for that. And, you know, just being someone in this field, it, it's, it's quite clear how insurances will fund these ABA therapies over physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. So ABA is just one of those things that is just always funded, that insurances are, uh, are, are always uh, much more apt to fund pediatricians and whoever it may be will, will recommend this ABA. And you have an entire generation of kids, verbal, nonverbal, low-functioning, high-functioning, that are undergoing this treatment, and we yet do not understand the longitudinal effects of how is it improving overall quality of life. Um, it, it certainly is rigid. I think anyone will, will admit that true ABA therapy is rigid, but it's really, you know, it, it's always a matter of therapist and, and, and pairing with, with client and student, uh, but it, it's, it's, it's definitely known that we do not know how this is affecting mm-hmm. people and what is it doing over the long term because ABA tends to be a multiple time a week, many hours a day thing. Uh, what is it doing and how is it uh, affecting them? And, and this prompt dependency, it simply just goes against all what, so much of what we learn as speech pathologists as we go through that graduate program of natural communication in the natural environment and responding to your peers and using your uh, body language and expressive language and receptive language, everything pairing together in the circles of communication. Uh, there's no prompting there. There's no reward there. It's about increasing your internal intrinsic motivation and having these natural conversations. I thought it was pretty jarring in the article. It says, quote, in fact, future generations can compare this kind of abuse to the abuse we recognize in classic experiments and treatments from generations before us. Um, hmm. it, it, that's deep, that, like not deep, but that, no, that that's, hits hard it's, to the it's core. strongly worded, yeah. Because I, I don't know about you guys, 
but how many times have we have I've worked with a student that is four or five years old who I'm holding on to a, a you know a Jenga brick and he's screaming at me to want it and I'm waiting for him to request it you know am I holding it too long because I was taught that we need to wait for him to state that thing and when do we create too far into that realm uh, of what ABA is doing for a negative reinforcement. I don't know. That's where my brain initially hits. Uh, you know, I had a, uh, a uh, clinical supervisor once they don't give it to him until he requests it. And there was a five minute scream fest until the student sat down and requested it. And it still gets to me today. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think the rigidity of ABA is something that definitely needs to be addressed. Um, and it, it, it really depends on the individual and where their training is, you know, ABA therapists will always defend ABA and, uh, and kind of not agree with the speech therapy. And, you know, I've worked with PTs that, uh, you know, as someone who specializes in ADHD, I've worked with PTs who specialize in sensory and say, oh, ADHD is not a real diagnosis. It's really mm. always, it's really always sensory. It's always this. Everybody has their own philosophies. There's no, there's no one size fits all. This is this is the right. This is the way it is. We have to look at what are the programs, what is the education, what is the curriculum, what are the experiences, how easy and how simple, and uh, are these people able to get certified and become therapists? And really, you know, learning different viewpoints and having different experiences. This is tough, man. I don't, this is one of those landmine articles that if you like ABA, what we're saying, it doesn't make sense to you. And if you hate ABA, what we're saying is the truth gospel, uh, spoken by Chomsky himself. Um, well, and have have either of you? Um, I haven't experienced or seen, and and like I said, I'm not not an ABA expert by any means. But um, in the article that was kind of jarring for me were some of the um, consequences, I guess you would call it, of various punishments, such as this is a quote from the article: misting the child on the face with water, taking away desired objects, withholding attention, ignoring the child, removing them from the situation, and even electric shock have all been utilized, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, and that's, it's quoted in some research there. I haven't seen that side of prompt consequence with ABA, but I'm curious if either of you have seen more. I have not. No, definitely not. Definitely not. And I, I would consider that to be something. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's that's, straight up abuse to me. That's not, that's gotta be like 30, 40 years ago. Okay. that, right. that that can't be that cannot possibly be right because that that doesn't make sense to me i mean removing them from a situation or withholding an object that's one thing <laughs> but yeah anyways sorry well no i was saying like i've worked with an aba uh teacher and she was great she stayed in her lane of aba and i think that is a completely different discussion for a different show about the scope of practice for aba Mm -hmm. but she stayed in her lane. I stayed in my lane and we worked together and we had a mutual understanding that I was concerned about the building blocks of language for the students. And she was concerned about the behavior that they were presenting. And she looked to me to talk about what she was seeing in the classroom and how can we form that into language. 
And I was telling her about what I saw language deficits and asked her what they would look like in the classroom for behavioral outbursts. And, you know, for example, I, I know it talks about toilet training. One of the things that she worked with her student on was that every time he pulled a, I need to use the bathroom card out of the book, it didn't matter when, what time of day it was or during the classroom, it didn't matter if he just got back, she or the aide took the student right to the bathroom. And it was every time he pulled a card off of his PEX book that, or not PEX book, but you know what I mean, verbal visual exchange book that mm -hmm. she was reinforcing that idea. And every time that there was a behavioral that needed to be modified, it was never like spraying the kid in the face. It was more trying to redirect into a positive with language. So my experience with ABA is completely different than what some of these people are saying that's out there that we've read about in those Facebook groups we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with a couple of BCBAs and I'm thinking specifically when I was in the therapy camp setting who were awesome. So I, you know, th this is a jarring article for me because I don't know that other side of it that other people are experiencing. But then I also, I'm with you, Matt, of trying to figure out how much, you know, how much withholding of something is okay mm -hmm. and how much is too much. Mike, we look to you as the executive functioning expert to tell us, are we in the wrong? Uh, no. Because <laughs> uh, we're not spraying the children or electrocuting them, right? Well, geez. My gosh. I mean, when you put it that way, that is abuse. Like, no. That, no. Clearly, yeah. I think if something like DIR uh, or, you know, other differing viewpoints, I'm not, I'm, I'm once again, I was just talking about bias. I'm yeah. trained, I'm trained in DIR and I love DIR. So there you go. But I think if, if other things were able to be uh, paid for by insurance as easily as mm -hmm. ABA, mm -hmm. I think once, once again, it, it always comes down to money. It always comes down to money. It always comes down to funding, just like everything does. Uh, if a, if a differing viewpoint from ABA were more easily accessible, even something like a music therapy or an art therapy, something, uh, I think we would start to see, uh, benefits being had in other areas, uh, besides the ABA protocol. Well, and I think you're, you're onto something there because I hadn't heard of DIR floor time until the last two years. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That was not a term that I was familiar with, but the vast majority of, you know, even non SLPs and non special ed folks have heard of ABA. Exactly. Exactly. One of the article, one of the, the, the links from the article, it says research has consistently found that individuals respond to the prompts instead of to the cues that are expected to evoke a target behavior, ultimately contributing to learned helplessness and arguably to low self-esteem. Um, and that explains why intensive conditioning and nonverbal children rarely generalizes to other tasks. Hmm. There you have it. So we want to hear from you head over to our website, weigh in on the ABA versus SLP fight. Go to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. You can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call 614-681-1798. Or if they would love to interact with us socially, how do they do that? Instagram at under at speech underscore science hashtag, hashtag SS pod. There you go. I love it. Our last article is a little bit about 
autism still, but more about what we're doing to raise awareness. And I'm going to play a short clip here uh, from the PSA Central. It's out of the Ad Council. Uh, we are full members of the Ad Council, and you'll notice those play between the shows. Here is a quick look at Julia from Sesame Street. <laughs> what is it, Julia? Why are you so excited, honey? Oh, oh hey, do you, do you want to use your talker? Oh. With Julia's autism, using a talker can help her find the words she wants to say. My dog. Oh. You want to do something with Rose, Julia? Play. Oh. <laughs> Do you want to play catch with Rose? Oh. <laughs> I think Rose is excited to play catch too. <laughs> oh, Julia, you show us so many different ways to talk together. <laughs> oh, and play. Good catch, Rose. <laughs> okay, give give Julia the ball. There you go. Okay, throw the ball, Julia. Oh. For Julia's family, early screening for autism made a lifetime of difference. Find out more at screenforautism.org. Okay, there you go. Oh, another good throw. That's the way. So that's made possible through Autism Speak, Sesame Street, and uh, the Ad Council, which we are full uh, members of. That's why we are allowed to play that whole clip. I, I love it. I love that Sesame Street has introduced Julia. I love that before my son even goes to school, He's introduced to my six-year-old. He's introduced to topics such as this. Uh, last week, Michael, we talked about the little girl in Toy Story with the cochlear implant. She's on screen for like two seconds. But I love that Sesame Street is using themselves for what they have always done, which was to show inclusion and, and educate. Exactly. Educate and expose. And there is absolutely nothing like this when we were kids. And the fact, and that's really all it is, is kids are now able to, to see that. Um, even just two years ago, when I would uh, introduce a talker to some of my students, they would walk back into the classroom and all the other kids, oh, what's that? What's that? Is that an iPad? Is that an iPad? And it's difficult for the kid and it's anxiety producing. So now if kids can know, oh, that's his iPad, that's for his communication, that's his talker. It's not an iPad, it's his talker or her talker. Um, I think that could really go a long way. And that's, that's really all what it's all about is exposure and getting it out there and giving, giving everybody a fair shot. I think it's great too. And I was thinking of Sesame Street with um i have a longer commute now for work uh i started back to work as you guys know and i've been listening to some different podcasts and there's one that is a dual thing with sesame street about parenting tips <clears throat> and um they talk about this whole developmental team i'm like i want to go work for sesame street can i do that <laughs> um, but they have this developmental team that you know every word that is said on sesame street is run by this team of child development experts and I love it, just like you said, Mike and Matt, that it's it's showing kids, it's giving them that little bit of exposure, even if they can't have it in person with, if there's not a kid next door or a sibling or a cousin or a friend or whoever else, they're getting it through something as simple as, as Sesame Street's ad or TV show. Sesame Street has been killing it i guess i can say that uh if, if if you're not familiar with the history of sesame street uh recently within the last 
year or, or 12 or 24 months, uh, it moved over to HBO. HBO is now in charge of producing new episodes of Sesame Street. Uh, since then, they've introduced Julia. They've introduced a uh, foster care puppet. And also, they have been the first TV show uh, to be honored at the Kennedy Center uh, Awards. So, pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool. And because it's, it, because it's on HBO now, they can curse. <laughs> That's part of the child development. That, <laughs> That's right. As Expo- long as they're ex- using exposure it to language. Exposure to language. As long as they're using it appropriately. That's right. All right. Well. That is a fun way to end. So we want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Phone call or text message 614-681-1798. Don't do it while we're driving. We learned earlier today that that may be a recipe for disaster. Michelle, what are you doing this next week? Oh my goodness, I feel like I have so much to update you on in the last two months. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I am back to work doing outpatient pediatrics here in Kentucky. And my son, Baby Speech Science, turned one year old on the 4th of July. Hey, happy birthday. Thank you. He's unfortunately, the week of his birthday, had croup, that terrible, terrible barking seal cough. That they wake up with overnight and um thankfully he's doing so much better uh he has more personality than we know what to do with and even though he's not saying a whole lot of words he communicates very well <laughs> at the moment uh with what he wants or doesn't want <laughs> and nice um yeah we're doing well michael what is going on with you this next week uh, pretty much just uh, just continuing what I've what I've been doing. Uh, have a lot of uh, have a big big evaluation coming up. It's going to take a few, uh, maybe even take place over a couple of days. Uh, always prepping for some big evals over the summer. Uh, getting everything prepared with some of my schools and some of my families for the upcoming school year. Uh, always meeting new families as well, which is always awesome. One of my favorite things. Uh, so yeah, just, uh, just kind of continuing and preparing for, uh, September as we always are. For myself, I am enjoying the end of my summer. I've got a couple trainings at the new school district, um, this weekend, probably a couple days after this episode hits, I'm dropping the computer off at micro center and hoping to get it updated and then going out to Kokomo, Indiana, uh, the birthplace of the Kokomo beach boy song because they've got one of the largest uh, vintage, antique, and new current uh, toy collections in the Midwest. And I'm going to go spend money on colorful plastic that gets to sit on my shelves and give some to my children. I was like, do you get to play with it? Uh, so if you look behind me, which you cannot, I just bought a street scene that my wife questions about. So I could re-put my action figures on the shelf and it looks like they're fighting at a building. Very cool, man. Wow. I'm a nerd and that is okay with me. (laughs) I like it. I like it. (laughs) It's the little things. Oh man, you have no idea. (laughs) And hang on. All right, cool. Three, two, one. You have no idea. You should feel bad for my wife because she is raising four, ch- three children at this point. <laughs> so. 
make sure you head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. We want to hear from you. And in the immortal words of Janice Wright, always be a willow because the oak will crack in the storm. The willow will bend and return to form. Our intro music tonight is Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music is the County Fair Rock by John Deku. He's pretty cool because he's married to an SLP and he made music just for our show. You can find him over at soundcloud.com slash dirtdogmusic. And our closing music is The Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. For Michelle Wintering and Michael McLeod, I'm Matt Hot. Going to go to Kokomo this weekend. We'll see you next week. So long, everybody. So Are you going to play a little clip of that song for us? Which one? Kokomo. Oh, I can't. We don't have the rights to that. You can play it. This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts.